Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Fidelis. It is Lauren and Cassie here with the second week of Advent. And we are still in the second week of our Advent challenge. So how are you doing? Are you working on praying the rosary every day? Yes, I'm admittedly, I'm still doing the one decade. Um, I really want to do the whole thing every day, but I'm not going to make any pretenses that I'm there yet. So yeah, but I'm, I'm really glad it's still like, I'm really glad that we're doing the challenge because it's like I said last week, I have this really bad habit of like looking at Instagram until I fall asleep. And this is really helping me to like reset that mentality. And so um, little baby steps, but yes. How about you? Um, I haven't done the whole rosary this week. I will say last night I did four decades and then I fell asleep during the fifth decade. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know mm-hmm. what they say, right? What is it like that, you know, if you fall asleep playing, praying the rosary, your guardian angel finishes it for you. Or that's what I always heard. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's what I'm sticking with. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Everyone, you can cheat a little bit and just do it at night right before you go to bed. <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel so bad, but at the same time, it's better than nothing. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so we're, we're getting close to our third week of Advent, um, will be Sunday and Christmas is like right around the corner, which is crazy. I know. I can't believe it. I, I feel like I always have, I always have this intention of making Christmas simpler every year and then I, it never end up, ends up getting simpler. So I'm not sure what I'm doing wrong, but Christmas keeps being complicated <laughs> in terms of just like gifts and stuff, but. Yeah, it's it's a fun time of year because it's so busy, but all the little events and parties and stuff are fun, so can't complain. We actually have not had a super huge problem with gifts. Maybe it's just because we're always, like, broke, but, you know, we just go to, like, thrift stores and stuff. You know, we don't, I don't tend to go too crazy with worrying about buying tons of presents, and Mm -hmm. I recommend that, even if you're not broke. You know, like it's so much easier to just go in thrift store and you find the stuff they have there. And those are your kids presents. I promise you, your kids will not know or care the difference. Uh (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I I feel like we pressure ourselves to do more expensive things than we need to do. I'm totally guilty of that. Um, But my kids, a lot of times, like the things that they like the most end up being from the dollar store and stuff. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and following a lot of the people on Instagram is also dangerous because you'll always see these moms that are like, oh, yeah, like this gift I just got is on sale for $70, and it starts to make you question, like, wait, how much are you supposed to spend on your kids? Am I, like, under underballing it here? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, and social media um, has definitely increased that, too, a lot, where mm-hmm. you feel the need to, like, outdo other people. You know, and that's, I mean, it's, it's with everything, not just, you know, Christmas, like with birthday parties and, and just, I mean, mm-hmm. there's always this need to, I don't want to say one up people. Cause I don't feel like your mm-hmm. people are necessarily trying to outdo everyone, but you see what other people are doing and you feel like, Oh, well that's the standard I have to live up to now. Mm-hmm. And it just is yeah, like this perpetuating cycle. I agree. And I, this is a weird place to draw inspiration, but I was reading, or listening on audiobook. I don't read a lot, but I listen to a lot of audiobooks. And um, I was listening to the book by Donald Trump's first wife, Ivana Trump. I don't remember what it was called. It was some kind of like an autobiography. But she said that like it was really important to them to um, not be like rich people when it came to like birthday parties and, and holidays and stuff. And so they have like a tradition of always doing their birthday parties at a park with like you know, grocery store food. And that's like the Trump tradition. And I guess like Ivanka still does that with her kids. And I kind of like that people talk about that because it makes you feel more validated that like, you don't have to increase your spending as your income increases. Like kids are still happy no matter how much you're spending on them. As long as you're giving them that quality time, like they know that you love them. Well, and let's be realistic. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't remember any specific presents from my childhood. Okay. I cannot, th- I mean, I, I take that back. There's one, one year they got us a trampoline and I only remember that okay. because we had it for so long. 
Yeah. You know? Other than that, I don't remember what I got for Christmas. You know, and your kids are not going to remember mm-hmm. the presents and stuff that they got at Christmas, you know? So it's not something to stress out about or, you know, mm-hmm. feel like you have to go crazy. I did, though, see a really good idea about um, making, like, snowmen towers. Mm-hmm. And at first it was kind of like I was eye-rolling a little bit because I'm like, oh, look, it's another thing to, you know, make people feel like they have to go above and beyond. But then it pointed out you only have three stacks and like one is a toy, one is an item of clothes and one is like a book or something. And they said uh-huh. that way you can't go overboard because you're limited yeah. to how much you can do to build the tower. And I was yeah. like, Oh, like, That's Oh, that idea. makes sense now. I might have to do that. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like a lot of, most of our kids are also getting gifts from other people besides us. Like my kids have gotten gifts from their teachers and their godparents and my their grandparents and my siblings and so yeah we're not the only people (laughs) that are gifting them either yeah that's definitely true okay well we we got a little bit off track from our (laughs) intended topic what we're going to talk about today are the catholic virtues and we have a fun little book to kind of delve into a little bit um there are seven virtues and four of them are the the cardinal virtues that were originally created. I don't want to. I don't know. If created is the best word, but um, defined. Yeah, defined by Aristotle and Plato. And those are temperance, wisdom, justice, and courage. And then the theological virtues were added by the church later, um, which are faith, hope, and charity. Mm-hmm. Now, is that something that, I mean, are, are you familiar with these and instituting yeah. the, them in your life? You know, I studied them in college in philosophy and theology classes, but I'm really glad that we're having this conversation because I really haven't reviewed them since then and I want to start teaching them to my kids. So there's a section in the catechism called The Human Virtues and it's paragraphs 1804 through, let me see where it ends. Um, 1845, if you want to read, like, the whole Catholic spiel on the virtues, that would be your go-to place. Um, but, yeah, I I have, like, um, I, I think there was a book by Peter, I want to, it was either Peter Creek or C.S. Lewis. They're so similar that I get them confused, but one of them was on the virtues, and it was so good because it went through, like, virtue by virtue and how you can implement it in your own life. And I remember reading that and that being really helpful. Um so yeah, after this conversation, I'm actually planning to kind of go through back, go back through the catechism and review. But I did want to say that the way that the catechism has listed the cardinal virtues are prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. I think they're pretty much the same as what you said. They just use like a different verbiage. So if that seemed off to anybody, they might just be used to the words that the catechism uses. Yeah, and um, that's exactly, there's just different words. That's exactly what you said. And what kind of made us want to talk about this is this book that I came across. I was actually looking for Christmas presents for people, and I found this book. And it's called Supergirls and Halos, My Companions on the Quest for Truth, Justice, and Heroic Virtue by Maria Moreira Johnson. And it basically has four parts that use the four cardinal virtues as their inspiration and it compares and contrasts um, basically geeky heroes, heroines (laughs) with saints, with female saints, which being, you know, kind of a nerdy person myself is something I definitely love. So there's people that she spotlights like Wonder Woman and Ray and black widow and so on. And then she can compares and contrasts them with different saints. So that's something that's pretty, I mean, it's kind of neat, you know? but the, the thing that's great about this book, as far as I'm concerned is, Oh, it kind of points out different ways that you can implement these virtues and why they're important in your everyday life. Uh-huh. That's so cool. I've never seen a book like that, honestly, like in the Catholic literature that did a secular Catholic comparison like that. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I feel like it's kind of 
something that we need to see because for a lot of a lot of us, I think it can be kind of difficult when you're comparing yourselves to saints. Like today is the feast of, um, we're recording today on Thursday on the 13th, and it's the feast of St. Lucy. You know, so for a lot of us, when we sit there and, and we maybe read her story and we go, oh, well, she was tortured and blinded and, you know, martyred in the fourth century. That's not something we're going to ever have to be confronted with, realistically speaking. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't things that we can take from her story or learn from her virtue. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the cool thing about, we always talk about this, but like how the church decides who to canonize. It's like the person that the church needs at that period in history, but they're also exemplars, not, not just of like contemporaneous needs within the church, but also like these eternal values that all Catholics are called to uphold. And I feel like that's kind of what's encapsulated in the virtues is these just baseline values that we're all aiming toward, seeing how different people have lived that out. It's powerful. Yeah. And we've talked about this before too. um, When we talked about different movies and books and stuff that have Catholic messages um, unintentionally, but that have, you know, good Catholic messages. And I think we even talked about wonder woman and she's in this book under, um, the virtue of justice, and she's featured with St. Catherine Drexel. And one of the things that the author points out is that seeking justice doesn't necessarily have to mean um, literally running in and saving someone from a burning building or stopping a shooting, you know, as it's happening or, or something like that. You know, it can be much more simple than that. But in our own way, we're all called to have the, the strength to fight for justice and make the world a better place, even if it's just in your own community. Yeah. And I think it's so cool to tie that to Wonder Woman and I'm sorry, I don't know if you can hear me, but it's so cool to tie that to Wonder Woman and St. Catherine Drexel, because many people probably know the story of Wonder Woman, but not very many know about Catherine Drexel. So I love that the book, the book did that. Yes, and for anyone here who's not familiar with St. Catherine Drexel, she was basically a very wealthy woman, um, or she came from a very wealthy family, and after her parents died, she and her sisters um, were left this, you know, massive fortune, and her parents, though, had raised them to be very mindful of giving to people in need, and um, St. Catherine really wanted to live her life as... she wanted to, to become religious, a religious. She wanted to join, you know, a convent or something. And initially, you know, she was told no because they were said, you know, you could potentially do more good um, as a married woman. So one of her sisters did get married, but Catherine Drexel did eventually become a nun. And with her sisters, though, together, they worked together to found schools for African-American and Native American women. This is in the 1800s. So, I mean, back in, in, you know, 200 years ago, this was practically unheard of. And it was very controversial. You know, they faced lots of threats and people trying to shut their schools down. But, I mean, they never wavered. And they used not only their their money, but, you know, their their education and their strength and their courage to, to educate these people that, at the time, were seen as less than human. Yeah, and it's cool how they were setting that example way before it was cool to do that. Um, And I feel like that's such a theme in our Catholic faith, like Catholics were starting hospitals before hospitals were really a big thing, and schools and universities. And um, yeah, I have to review Catherine Drexel's life story, but I know someone who was related to her. So I always grew up like kind of like hearing her be praised and honored. Um, But I don't don't know her whole story inside and out. And then the other person they mention in the um, the justice section is Ray and St. Clair of Assisi, mm-hmm. which, and the point of, you know, all of this, I think, that we can take from it is that, you know, maybe we can't necessarily be Wonder Woman or Ray, and maybe we're not given the ability to found schools or, you know basically take on all of the church leadership like St. Clair of Assisi did. But um, 
we can still work to make a difference in our own communities and try to make the world a better place. I mean, that's what we're called to do as Catholics, you know, even if it's just in little ways, maybe it's, you know, you're going to go volunteer at a pregnancy help center, or maybe you're going to go help at your local hospital, or, you know, maybe you're going to go join boys and girls club to help mentor kids that are in need, you know, whatever it is, you can make a difference in your own community in your own life and that can help bring justice to other people it doesn't necessarily have to mean what people tend to think of on the shallower realm of you know justice it doesn't necessarily mean literally put bad people away (laughs) yeah and I feel like Saint Therese is a really powerful influence when it comes to recognizing how we can be used in our own communities Um, because of her little way like we can always look for the little ways that don't even involve necessarily leaving, like signing up for a club or leaving our house, like looking for that person that we are confronted with in our daily lives, whether it's like the person that just cut us off when we're driving or like somebody in our neighborhood that had a baby and needs a meal. Like how many, how many little ways are we confronted with on a daily basis when we can practice these virtues in like a micro way but I feel like that's particularly important today because, um, well, I don't know about other people, but I feel like my community, can, people can be kind of isolated within my community. So it's not a huge, I don't live in like the middle of the inner city or anything. It's like a suburb and it's safe and quiet. But at the same time, I feel like people are just going about their daily lives and they're not interacting that much. And I think social media contributes to that. Like we just have our friends online and we don't interact with each other as much in general as a society anymore. So I feel like we're even, there are even more opportunities to practice that little, those little things that we can do on a daily basis to recognize that like our neighbor is alone or needs something or we could help them in some way. And to just like take little tiny steps to do that. Cause I, I personally get overwhelmed by the idea of like volunteering at a hospital when I already have like a whole family to take care of at home. But I know that I can look for people in my daily life to, to serve. I know that's cliche, but I wanted to mention it. No, that's actually not cliche at all because I mean, again, that goes back to when people think of justice, they usually think of the very black and white kind of cultural definition, which is, you know, bad person does a bad thing and they're held responsible. But if you look at the actual definition, it's of the virtue of justice. It's regulates man and his dealings with others. And what's connected to justice are virtues of piety and gratitude. So, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily about, you know, like I said, this kind of cultural envisioning of what justice means. Yeah, and we underestimate how much we can contribute to justice, just like by little things in our daily life. We can make so much of a difference. <laughs> Sorry, I have a kid talking to me. Thank you, Moses. Yeah, um, yeah, as always, you know, I think we I usually... I think you're give... muted. Oh, yep, I was. Sorry. <laughs> as we've... um you know, talked about in pretty much every podcast, you might hear little people or noises or things in the background, but that's okay. Cause we're all about being real life. So, you know, yeah, this is as real as it gets, man. <laughs> um, the next virtue that they mention in the book is the virtue of prudence, which is, um, the ability to govern and discipline oneself using reason. And that's something that I think is less popular right now. Um, in today's world. Yeah. I feel like we could go off on a tangent on the lack of people using reason in today's world, (laughs) especially with what you and I do for a living. (laughs) Well, not even that, but I mean, the idea of, you know, potentially denying yourself or disciplining yourself, that's not something that people Mm -hmm. are very um, into. True. Yeah. I feel like the governing message today is kind of like that whole treat yourself thing, but that's not always the best way to like foster virtue in your life. Um, So yeah, where are those opportunities to practice self-control and temperance? Yeah. So 
she draws a connection between um, Black Widow, which I think is, she is not one of my favorite superheroes. So <laughs> I don't know what your thoughts yeah. are on her or anyone else's listening. No, I don't really view her as a superhero. I view her as this like extra character in a superhero movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to me, she's definitely there to fulfill a purpose, and it's not to be um, a superhero. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well said. But the the parallel drawn in this book is to St. Mary Magdalene as an imparter of mercy and service, which I think is really interesting because St. Mary Magdalene, and just to stop really quick here and give a brief disclaimer, we're not reviewing this book so much as we are just trying to talk about these virtues because virtues are something that are not discussed, you know, very much in our world today. So please know we're not literally going to go over every single saint and every single superhero that's mentioned in the book. Um, anyway, so St. Mary Magdalene definitely has an image that, you know, people think of her as, um, and the most famous one is that she's a prostitute, but the little known fact is that there's no actual evidence for that. It's never mentioned in the Bible. It wasn't something that really came into play until, um, I believe, around the medieval period that she started being portrayed as a prostitute. Um, but in actuality, the cues you can find from the Bible show that she was probably someone that came from a fair amount of wealth and privilege. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and I think there's confusion because there's a couple of Marys in the Bible that are kind of lumped together in, like, tradition but they're not necessarily the same person yeah and so I think that when you take Mary Magdalene and you look at her as okay well she was this wealthy woman who likely you know had again this privilege and this social high social standing and then you look at what she chose to do with her life you know, the mercy and the service that she gave to Jesus. Um, and also it makes more sense when you think of things like her using the expensive perfume to, to bathe Jesus's mm-hmm. feet with. Um, she was able to do that because she had the money to do that. <laughs> Not yeah. because she was a prostitute and she used that money in service to Jesus. Um, and she showed mercy to him while he was on the cross, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I love the stories of the saints that were with Jesus during his passion. So John the Beloved, Mary Magdalene, Our Lady, they have like such a unique perspective to offer for how we should treat everyone based on how they treated Jesus. Because Jesus told us what you do to the least of these, you do it to me. And on the cross, he said, I thirst, which Mother Teresa always interpreted as him saying, I thirst for souls. And that we were to kind of view him as like a paradigm of humanity so that, yeah, just taking the cues from how Jesus's most loved, beloved followers ministered to him during his passion. I feel like for me personally, that's been really, really powerful. Yeah. And a lot of them weren't there, you know, at his darkest moment. And I don't want to say that as it's like a character failing I mean, when you stop and I don't know if anyone that's listening, if you've ever looked into the physiology of the crucifixion, I think we might've talked about it before, but it's horrifying. It's awful. Um, so I can't say that I would blame someone for not being able to witness that and watch that, but it takes an incredible amount of strength of character. And not only that, but the mercy to be there for someone and to be able to serve them and kind of put yourself aside and be there during the worst moment of their life, no matter how agonizing it may be for you. And that speaks a lot to Mm -hmm. to Mary Magdalene and who she was. Yeah. And it was so selfless for those people in particular, because those were the people who loved Jesus the most in the whole world. So I feel like not only did they not abandon him, but the, the amount of pain that they must've been experiencing on a personal level to be able to stay there and, um, stay by Jesus's side through what he was going through. I mean, it. in Mary's case, she was literally watching that happen to her child. I mean, can you imagine? I, I can't even wrap my brain around it. No, like, what that would be like. We've talked about that too, like how difficult it is as yeah. a mom to watch like the Passion of the Christ. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's this one scene, I mention it every time in conjunction with this movie, mm-hmm. where, you know, Jesus falls and she flashes back to him falling as a child. And it's just like, Oh, I can't, no, mm -mm. I can't even imagine. I cannot even imagine. 
But then in the case of like John and Mary Magdalene, I mean, Mary Magdalene was, is kind of in, in our tradition, she's kind of portrayed as his most enthusiastic and devoted like follower. And then John, I, I think was kind of like Jesus's best friend. I mean, these people were experiencing a tremendous amount of personal pain. And I feel like the, 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 there must have been this conflict within them that they just wanted to run away and escape what they were viewing because of the personal pain that it was causing. But on the other hand, they loved Jesus so much that they couldn't walk away from that. And how does that manifest in our lives? I mean, for example, I mean, this is a very small example, and I feel this every day, but like, one of my kids is going through a really difficult time emotionally, and it's a lot easier for me to just like let him watch a cartoon when I know I need to sit down and talk to him about how did his day go and how did he deal with his challenges. But I know that he just wants to watch a cartoon, and I don't want to deal with the emotional strain of like confronting the issues that he's going through. And so um, I feel like there's a little bit of strength that we can draw in those very small, like things that we encounter in our daily lives where we can kind of learn from what the people did at the cross. Well, and how do you feel, how would you say that, you know, what Mary Magdalene did in her life, not even just at the cross, but just in general, how does that relate to prudence as a virtue? Um, well, we were talking about her in relation to courage, right? Um, to prudence. Or Prudence, discipline of of yourself. Let me read what the catechism has about prudence. Um, Prudence is the virtue that disposes practical reason to discern our true good in every circumstance and to choose the right means of achieving it. The prudent man looks where he is going. That's a quote they use. Keep sane and sober for your prayers. That's another quote that they use. Prudence is the right reason in action, writes St. Thomas Aquinas, following Aristotle. It is not to be confused with timidity or fear, nor with duplicity or dissimulation. It's called Auriga Virtutem, the charioteer of the virtues. It guides the other virtues by setting rule and measure. So I'm wondering with Mary Magdalene, if maybe one way that she was practicing prudence was that she had this insane intense love for Jesus but she had to restrain that in order to be able to minister to him and to be there for Mary like I imagine that she had to defer like she had to hold back some of her own emotion in order to give Mary the emotional support that she deserved so those are a couple of ways that I could see Mary Magdalene like having practiced prudence and Jesus too I mean she was emotionally supporting him as well yeah yeah. And I, the, I read a book about Mary Magdalene. I think it was from the visions of Anne Catherine Emmerich, if I remember. And then um, uh, based on what we know of her from scripture, like just the thing about Mary Magdalene is she was emotionally attached to Jesus. And I think she must have been had to practice like extreme prudence to be able to balance her emotional attachment with um, the needs of the, the people around her at that time. And that's something that's not very popular, I would say today. Um, and I don't want to say, I don't want this to come across in a way, especially as moms and it's not even just moms, because I know that not everyone that listens, um, has children. It, you know, just in general as women, I think it's very easy for us to get caught up and, you know, caring for everyone else. So I'm not trying to say that things like self-care and taking time for yourself, these aren't bad things, but in general, culturally, if you look around at our society, it's, it's very me based. It's not about putting yourself, you know, behind other people. It's all about what can you do for yourself? And and you're the most important person. And Mm -hmm. the idea of prudence, I would say is probably, well, I would say maybe the, the, least popular virtue but I don't know temperance might be even more so <laughs> yeah but we'll get to that I think in a that's second. a really good point and you use a good example about self-care because we get these conflicting messages from society like we know self-care is important and if you kind of like don't put your own oxygen mask on first um how can you help those around you but the message from society is not balanced like nothing in our culture in our secular culture um is balanced and so when we talk about 
prudence. We in one example of how we would practice that in our lives would be how can we take care of ourselves without becoming self-centered, narcissistic, you know, balancing our needs with those of our children. And I feel like that's a really big challenge for women in general. It is. But then when you talk about prudence, you also have to be able to, I mean, like it says, govern yourself and discipline yourself. So there's this need for us to, I mean, have that prudence to understand the difference between self-care and being more concerned with yourself than you are for the people around you. So whether it's your children or maybe your parents, if you don't have kids or your coworkers or, I mean, whatever the situation may be, you have to be able to balance your needs with those of others. And then also the idea of disciplining yourself. You know, we all have our own issues that we have to face, our burdens that we have to carry. And, you know, maybe it's something like you have to discipline your, your anger. If you have a temper, you know, you have to find a way to, to temper that, to discipline yourself so you're not flying yeah. off the handle. And one really good example of this, not a Catholic one, admittedly, but I mean, in Little Women, um, and I just say this because as a kid, I read that book all the time and it never really. Yeah, I love that book too. But then as an adult, I read it again. I remember when Joe and Marmee are sitting together and Marmee is explaining to her, you know, Joe is like, you never lose your temper. You're never angry. And Marmee's like, no, I'm angry all the time. But, <laughs> you know, she has yeah. to discipline herself. She has to have the prudence to yeah. discipline her anger and govern herself well. And that's something that just... Again, I feel like that's a message people don't get very much through. Marmy is such a great character. I feel like we need like a show about Marmy in 2018. <laughs> um, but something that you said made me remember like to talk about this particular aspect of virtue that um, the virtues are pretty much impossible to practice of your own strength, your own ability. Um, there's something that you really need divine interventions to be able to practice because they kind of go against our concupiscence, like our fallen state in the world. And so there's just this really, there's a couple sentences that I wanted to read from the catechism kind of about this. And it's under a section called the virtues and grace and it's paragraphs 810 and 811. Um, they say human virtues are acquired by education, by deliberate acts and by perseverance ever renewed in repeated efforts are purified and elevated by divine grace. So we, we learn them and we, we practice them, but we can't perfect them or bring them to their fullest expression without divine intervention, basically. With God's help, they, for, they forge character and give facility in the practice of good. The virtuous man is happy to practice them. And I really like this part. It's not easy for man wounded by sin to maintain moral balance. Ain't that the truth? Christ's gifts of salvation offers us the grace necessary to persevere in the pursuit of virtues. Everyone should always ask for this grace of light and strength, frequent the sacraments, cooperate with the Spirit, and follow his calls to love what is good and shun evil. So there's this really big feature of talking about the virtues, I feel like, which is... is these are things that, that we aspire to and practice and learn about and educate ourselves in, but fully acknowledging that we can't attain them on our own. They're not, it's not just like practice makes perfect completely. Like it practice is very important, but you need that grace and you need to recognize that you won't be able to attain the height of virtue without that pure gift of divine intervention. That's definitely true. And it's a good reminder of why we need to keep up to date with our sacraments, as we talked about in, I think, just a few weeks ago, a podcast about how, you know, like things like not going to confession, yeah. not receiving the Eucharist, it has an effect. It really does. And it's easy to get, um, what's the word, like cocky about our need for the sacraments, I think, because a lot of us don't. Okay, for example, my sister, if she doesn't go to Holy Communion and confession like every week, she feels this like gaping hole in her heart and she just like craves the Eucharist, like she craves eating food. But I don't have those feelings that my sister has. Like, and so it's easy to think, 
like for your brain to just go to this place where you're like, well, I don't need the sacraments as much. And that's not the case at all. Like we have to remind ourselves that no matter how we actually feel towards the sacraments or like craving the sacraments, um, we need them. We all need them 100%. So the next, um, the next virtue that is listed in this book in part three is fortitude and fortitude is kind of more similar to justice um in that it's it's kind of like brave endurance is is how it's kind of equated with how it's described um the ability to endure um and to not give up and to stay strong in the face of struggles and things like that and um what i find really interesting is that two of the comparisons she makes are hermione granger and I feel like I'm going to butcher this poor woman's name because I cannot speak French, but St. Margaret de Yeovil, um, okay. who I am like vaguely familiar with because she was the founder of the Order of Sisters of Charity of Montreal, who are known as the Grey Nuns. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. She was the first native-born Canadian to ever be declared a saint. And um, oh. she was married to this man who was a bootlegger a bootlegger who sold you know liquor to people illegally and was an alcoholic and but the she lost pretty much everyone in her family um very quickly um her husband her father four of her children um but she became more and more passionate about her faith and after she was widowed that was when she um, founded this religious association. And what their goal was, was to provide a home for the poor, which very much, because this is in the 1700s, and ministering to the poor that that closely was not something that was really done. It definitely went against the social conventions. And so they were very much mocked by their friends, by just people in society. I mean, everyone around them and their name, the gray nuns was originally, that was, that was meant to be an insult. Um, and they would refer to them as the drunken women as an insult against her, her, her husband. Um, but she endured despite all of that. And, and even kind of, funnily enough, taking on, you know, this name that was used as an insult against her became their actual name that they're known of. And they're known as the gray nuns of Montreal, um, which is kind of a cool thing to do when you think about it. And it's not hard to see. I think when you think of all of that, why that is a parallel to Hermione Granger, which I think we've talked to, I know we talked about Harry Potter and all of the Catholic themes in Harry Potter, because there's a gazillion of them. There's so many. And Hermione is a great example of fortitude. And in this particular case, um, the author talks about defenders of fairness and honor. Um, Hermione Granger and, and St. Margaret of Deauville. And that's a perfect way to describe Hermione. Fairness is something that is very important to her. She, more than anyone else, I think, in the entire series, really, really fights for those who don't have people to advocate for them, you know, and she gets made fun of for it. Like the house elves, you know, people mock and ridicule her, but she doesn't let that slow her down. She doesn't, even though she's like the only person that does it and everyone, even her best friends make fun of her for doing it and ridicule her. She doesn't let it stop her. She doesn't let it stop her when everyone else has abandoned Harry, you know, in the fourth book, she still reigns by sight. Even Ron has abandoned Harry. And then again, in the seventh book, you know, Ron abandons Harry and, and Hermione, even though there's all these people in these situations that have abandoned him and are ridiculing him or want him dead, whatever the case may be, she doesn't let that stop her. And so it's, I mean, that's a really good parallel between, you know, this fictional character and this real life saint. That is so cool. I have never read Harry Potter, as you know, so I'm learning, I'm learning more and more all the time. But I want to read um, what the catechism says about fortitude, too. So it says, fortitude is the moral virtue that ensures firmness in difficulties and constancy in the pursuit of good. It strengthens the resolve to resist temptation, 
and to overcome obstacles in the moral life. The virtue of fortitude enables one to conquer fear, even fear of death, and to face trials and persecutions. It disposes one to renounce, the to renounce and sacrifice his life in defense of a just cause. Um, I, I like this because it applies to so many different tangible things that we go through. So, I mean, say you have a bad habit that's a sinful and you're trying to break it. Fortitude is the thing that after you've made that resolution, fortitude is the thing that's going to carry you through to the end. Say you are a Christian who is in a country where Christians are being persecuted. Fortitude is the virtue that you're going to practice um, if you're faced with martyrdom. Um there's so many, it seems like there's so many small and large applications of this virtue. Um, and I love the, the anecdotes that you described who, um, who demonstrated it. Um, and I feel like this is one virtue that um, the world still kind of likes and like recognizes that it's important, even though we all practice it in different ways, like between Christians and secular people. Yes, but it can still be something, I mean, as long as you're practicing it in the right way, according to the secular world, you know, <laughs> you know, if you live in, say, California, and you're using your fortitude to fight for pro-life causes, that's not going to be very popular. But that's where your fortitude yeah. will come into play. Exactly, exactly. I mean, there's so many things that we have to fight today that are not popular. And so fortitude is very much a virtue that I could see is very relevant to American Christians, <laughs> Christians well, in the West. And I think that our fortitude is something that's really needed as Catholics right now, given the scandal that's gone on in the church. Um, we haven't talked about it as much. Um, I know we, we did several podcasts like back to back about point. it. Um, but there's a lot of people that are talking about, you know, how they've left the church and I can't, I don't want to say I don't blame them for that. <laughs> I feel like a lot of the blame for that can be laid at the feet of the people that have led them astray. Um, but there is a lot of pressure to see the church as an evil organization to abandon her, to leave because it's, it's, there's all of these things happening and it takes intense fortitude to stand by the church and to openly do so in a time like this. Yeah, that's a really, really good point and probably the most pronounced example of fortitude that Catholics are being called to right now, um, especially because the, the debate has gotten so tribal that it's, it's easy to lose sight of what you're even supposed to be having the fortitude to hold on to. You know, because there's this huge split between people who no longer like Pope Francis and people who are defending Pope Francis. And, like, at the end of the day, it's not even about Pope Francis. Like, it's about our Catholic faith as a whole and and Jesus Christ and the sacraments of our church. And, like, everything that the Catholic Church is throughout history, that's what we're holding on to. We're not... Um, it's, but it's just become a war between people who don't like the Pope and people who do in a lot of ways. I feel like that's made fortitude even more complicated, um, <laughs> situation. So yeah, that's a big one. That's a really good one. And I think even the, mo the most like devoted Catholics have struggled with that particular virtue during this scandal, I would imagine. I know I have. Yes. And I mean, there's, it's impossible not to struggle. But again, that's where that, that virtue comes into play and using the sacraments to help nourish that virtue and things like praying the rosary every day, you know, that, that keeps that virtue alive inside of you. And whether you're, you're well, I cannot talk for a second there, whether you are using it to do things like, you know, fight for pro-life causes or to, you know, even just staunchly remaining a proud Catholic. Um, I mean, that's a virtue that, that is important to maintain and it doesn't necessarily have to mean, you know, founding a convent that houses the poor. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think we always, when we look at the saints, there's always that tendency to see the big, huge thing and miss all the little things in our life where it can be applied. But um, I think Our Lady is a really good example too. When we're having this general conversation about virtues, like, 
she models the virtues in so many little ways that we can kind of pick up on throughout scripture and really enormous ways like the incarnation. Um, but yeah, I think she she's a good example. And that's another reason I'm glad we're doing this rosary challenge because we really need Marian and Confession to be faithful Catholics and virtuous people in 2018. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, we definitely need... We definitely need Mary now more than ever. <laughs> I feel like everyone, every Catholic throughout history was probably saying that, but I just, I just want to hear your argument for why um, 2018 would be less difficult than other ages. <laughs> I feel like that's something that people always say when they're going through it. And I actually use that as a way to um, kind of console myself, whether it's about like the state of the country like I'll sit there and tell myself, oh, the United States, this is like just the worst time ever. And then I'm like, well, there was the whole civil war. <laughs> right. I know. It's so easy to like victimize ourselves. But yeah, I know we have it really, really good. Even in terms of church history, like this is not one of the bigger things the church has been through, I don't think. But yeah, probably not. But it's hard to it's hard to, to see that when you're the one going through it. Yeah, and it's not over yet. We don't really know how it's going to play out. So. Yeah, well, I mean, it was like, what was it, Pope Benedict, you know, when he was a priest, but way before he was Pope, he was the one that said that he foresaw this, you know, horrible thing coming, that the church was mm -hmm. going to have to make itself small again, and maybe that's what's mm -hmm. happening. And, yeah. you know, maybe it is. I don't know. But we'll yeah. see. We're just going to have to keep our fortitude going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that's my favorite virtue that we've talked about. <laughs> um, and then the last virtue that's mentioned in the book is temperance. And I would say this is probably the least popular virtue <laughs> in our modern world, which is, you know, all about moderating your desires and pleasures of life. Um, and what goes along with it are things like humility and meekness. And um, let's just be realistic. That's not something people are really into today. Oh, yeah. I thought I was on mute and I was unmuting myself. I wasn't even on mute. Yes, I, <laughs> We're just a I'm mess today. <laughs> I know. I swear, man, this is just a rough time of year for moms, I think. Um, yes, temperance, I'm going to read the definition again, because I just love the definitions in the catechism. Um, temperance is a moral virtue that action of pleasure and provides balance in the use of created goods. It ensures the will's mastery over instincts and keeps desires within the limits of what is honorable. Can you still hear me? Uh, yes, I can hear you. Okay, sorry. Temperance is often praised in the Old Testament. Do not follow your base desires, but restrain your appetite. In the New Testament, it is called moderation or sobriety. We ought to live sober, upright, and godly lives in the world. So, and then there's a quote that demonstrates temperance. But, yeah, I feel like this is not a popular virtue in modern culture at all. I mean, you see that in things ranging from the porn epidemic to radical feminist movement views the world and that's really pervasive in like our universities where hedonism is basically your end, end all be all goal is to achieve you know pleasure and at the expense of the weaker people around you even um, the the attainment of pleasure is viewed as um, as a, a moral good today. And that's like the complete diametrical opposite of what temperance is teaching us. So I see like not only are people not practicing temperance, but there's like this rejection of it. This idea that like temperance is the old fashioned patriarchal or whatever, like thing that was not good for humanity. And we're going to uproot it by practicing the opposite. That seems to be what a lot of our like modern mentality is. And I mean, we see this in everything from things as dire as the porn epidemic to like the portion sizes at a restaurant, you know, temperance is the thing that we don't want to practice. Yeah. And I think that porn is a really good example of that. Um, and I'm, 
I'm sh- I can't speak for Lauren, but I feel fairly certain in saying that we, both of us, are not saying this as a way of criticizing anyone that's listening that may have struggled with porn because uh-huh. even as studies have shown, it is addicting. You know, it's something that's like it gets in your brain and you can't, it's, it's harder and harder to not watch once you start. And it actually fundamentally changes the way your brain you know, like it changes your brain chemistry. There are studies that have found this. So the point is not to say, oh, if you watch porn, you're a terrible person. But if you look at our wider societal view of pornography, it is seen in most circles as a positive, normal, healthy thing, not something bad, not something dirty to be avoided, but it's seen as something good. And there are even op-eds. If you were to look around, you can find all kinds of things that are like chastising women for being upset that their husbands or boyfriend or partner or whatever, you know, that they find them looking at porn. And the reality is it's like, well, you have every right to be upset about something like that. But culturally speaking, it's not seen that way anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think porn is really like the, the, okay. In a minute. Porn is really like the standard um, example of, I think, the, the wholesale rejection of temperance. And like you said, it's not just the fact that people are addicted to it, which may or may not, they may or may not have more or less culpability because every individual became addicted in a different way and gave more or less of their own, you know, woven into it because that's the way that mortal sin works. But the way that it is culturally defended and held up as a moral good, and how people who disagree held up as puritanical or outdated or uptight. You can really see like the spiritual warfare of the modern era in that debate. It's like encapsulated because the thing that is abjectly evil is held up as a moral good, and the people who are trying to stand by. The more, what is actually moral good are presented by society and pop culture at large as buddy duddies, <laughs> like the word, the dregs of society. So yeah, I, I think that that's a very good example. Right. And I mean, you, it's not even that you like, you can't even talk about the abuses in the industry without people getting upset. Um, or homosexuality, I think is another really good example of that. And Again, that's not to say, because I mean, one thing that I love about the church is that there's not this idea that, oh, well, if you're gay, you're automatically a sinner. There's a lot of Protestant denominations that do that. The Catholic Church does not. Um, But it's this idea, societally speaking, that it is now required for you to not just be tolerant, but you have to accept it. You know, you have to celebrate the idea of, you know, same-sex marriage and, you know, um, people that are transgender transitioning from one gender to the other. And it's, and this is not like the forum right now, literally to speak about these specific issues. But the point there is that the idea of temperance of not just giving in to whatever desire it is that you want, like the, if you were to talk to, you know, get into a debate with someone about same-sex attraction and tell them, you know, well, the church says it's fine if you're gay, you just have to be celibate. It's as if you have just told someone they have to, like, cut off their right arm, you know, because depriving yourself of sexual pleasure would be the worst thing in the world. When the reality is, would it be difficult? Yes. Is it a burden for someone to bear? Yes. But it's, it's, I think it just goes and speaks to where our societal viewpoint is that depriving yourself of something, of anything, whether it's, you know, sex or pornography or too much food or I mean, stuff, whatever it is, depriving yourself is very unpopular. Yeah. And I think that is an excellent point that really encapsulates like the struggle with practicing all the virtues right now, but temperance in particular is it's that the cultural focus is on ourselves. The cultural focus is narcissistic and it has set up the individual human as its own God, but with caveats, like 
because <laughs> not every human is is honored as an important member of society. Obviously, the preborn child can be killed at the whim of a bigger, more powerful human's convenience or the elderly person who can be euthanized or the child who can be neglected. There's really like a focus on a specific subset of humans that are allowed to to erect themselves as their own gods, their own idols, and everyone else around them is supposed to be subjugated to their wants and desires. And I think that's like a big contradiction within the current mindset that we have toward virtue is that when you look at something like temperance and all the ways that it is violated through, say, pornography, we, um, when we're focusing on hedonism or like self-gratification as the highest good, we are ignoring all of the people that are wounded in that process. And every time we practice intemperance, without exception virtually, um, it's hurting other people. It's not just hurting our relationship with God. But, I mean, look at the porn industry. We, we all know what goes into producing porn and distributing porn. Um, we know the children that, whose innocence is ruined by stumbling across it. You know, there's so many other people who are affected by this mindset that says that self-gratification is the highest moral good. And I feel like it's just this huge, like, gap that we've allowed to exist in our minds where we've accepted, a lot of us have accepted the idea that self-gratification is a high good um, and kind of everyone else doesn't really matter. And that's really one of the insidious consequences of rejecting virtue in general. But this one in particular um, is that we've, we've allowed so many other members of the human family to become collateral damage in that pursuit. Well, and it may not necessarily be as even as, cause I mean, we've talked, you know, with the previous virtues, you know, there's the big ways that we see with the saints and then there's the little ways that we can do in a regular life. So, I mean, for all of us, it may not be, especially people listening to Fidelis. I have a feeling that the people listening here are trying their best to, you know, yeah. follow the teachings of the church, but even in little ways, it may be something as small as, you know, with your money, you know, like, like what we were talking about with Christmas, you know, not governing your desire to give your kids, you know, too much stuff. And then your emphasis becomes on gifts at Christmas instead of what the actual real meaning of Christmas is supposed to be. That's an issue of temperance as well. Um, that's just maybe less insidious than, you know, mm -hmm. pornography or, you know, alcoholism or whatever the case may be. Yeah, and, and we can affect that broader society and those broader problems that we talked about, I think, by practicing it in those little, practicing temperance in those little ways. And just teaching our kids that, like, sometimes you have to say no to yourself for the good of other people. And that's a good thing. So those will be good ways to set them up for those bigger battles they're going to have to face later on. Right. Definitely. And um, for, people, for people that don't have children... Um, there's an example of someone that I'm in a, um, a Facebook group with that um, she's been discerning for years and years, becoming a consecrated virgin, which we talked about um, way back when, I think. And this is not the same thing as joining religious life. Um, all, well, it is a facet of religious life, but she's not becoming a nun. She's becoming a consecrated virgin. And that's something that was very common a long time ago. And now it's practically unheard of. And she was literally afraid to come forward and tell people about this. And she kind of had asked, you know, Hey, can you, can you guys back me up when I come out, so to speak about it? Because once again, the idea of depriving yourself, Oh my gosh, you're going to go your whole life without having sex. <gasps> you know, people find it just the craziest thing in the world, but you know, yeah. Sometimes that's yeah, what that's, we need to do. It's funny, though. It's funny, too. Like, I think that shows the, the, the way our culture has, like, eradicated temperance. Because when you become a consecrated virgin, the main, the main feature of that is that you're dedicating your life to Jesus. It's not that you're... The main feature is not that you're not going to have sex. That's, like, a secondary consequence of dedicating yourself to Jesus. But all people see when they hear that term. Is like no sex, and it just the the ostracism that people face for making those types of decisions. It's 
it's totally emblematic of the lack of temperance that we have in our culture. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's not considered, you know, from my research for this podcast, it's not, temperance is not considered to be the most important one. Um, what did I see? St. Thomas Aquinas had, uh, I don't remember. Well, I don't know where I had put it, but basically it was not necessarily always considered the most important of the virtues, but I feel like in today's world, it might be, you know, maybe 2000 years ago, it wasn't, but today, you know, it might be. Yeah. At least it's the most neglected one today. (laughs) And then we have, you know, in closing our theological virtues, which are faith, hope, and charity. Wait, wait, was it faith, hope, and charity? I might have just said the yep. wrong thing. Some people just call charity love, but okay. yeah, faith, hope, and charity are love. Faith, hope, and charity. We'll have to do a whole show on those because there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, but in a shorter kind of way, how would you say, you know, pe- that would impact, you know, people's lives today, the theological virtues? Well, I can read what the Catechism recommends, because you can't go wrong there. The human, vir- the human virtues are rooted in theological virtues. So the, the human virtues are the cardinal virtues that we already discussed, which adapt man's faculties for participation in the divine nature. The theological virtues relate directly to God. They dispose Christians to live in a relationship with the Holy Trinity. They have the one and triune God for their origin, motive, and object. The theological virtues are the foundation of Christian moral activity, they animate it and give it special character. They inform and give life to all the moral virtues. They are infused by God into the souls of the faithful, etc. So basically, the theological virtues are like the, the root and the goal of the other virtues. They're, they reflect our, our relationship with God, and they reflect our teleological end of union with God in heaven. So... Um, very important and if you want to like practice i don't know if you this wouldn't be a way of practicing the virtue if you want to foster these virtues there is actually an act of faith an act of hope and an act of love they're very short and you can learn them and like memorize them easily and just kind of like recite them throughout the day um and i think that's a really good devotional practice for not only remembering what the theological virtues are but how to apply them in your life. So I would highly recommend looking up the act of faith, the act of hope and the act of love. Yes. And if you, um, if you ever pray any novenas, um, maybe you may or may not have noticed, um, that these are things that are often prayed for during the novena. It's faith, hope, and love. Oh yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. And then a lot of people have a tradition when they're praying the rosary that, the first three Hail Marys, like after you do the creed, will be offered for an increase in faith, hope, and charity. So I feel like there are devotional ways throughout church history that people have really tried to make those theological virtues like a part of their daily life. Yes, yeah. And they're probably in a lot of ways both easier and more difficult (laughs) than the other virtues, Uh you know, easier because it's easier to be hopeful or to try to show more love to people than it is to say, deprive yourself or to have the fortitude to fight back when some will not fight back, but to stand steady when someone is persecuting you. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, increasing in faith or hope, you know, like right now during the scandal in the church can be very difficult. Yeah. too. Yeah. I feel like the, the, the cardinal virtues are kind of like more practical, practical application, and the theological virtues are more aspirational, but I feel like they can be really hard to practice at times, too, especially love, charity, like when you really don't like somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, especially because that's what we're, we're told to do is we're supposed to, you know, love the people that hate us and persecute us the most, and um, yeah, that's pretty difficult. Yes. that's probably the hardest one I think yeah so I think that's about it for our discussion today of you know all of our virtues and stuff and now that we're at the end we can go ahead and say the reason we have this discussion about virtues in this specific book is because we are going to be giving a copy of this book away so um we will say yeah so I've read it um it's a pretty easy read it's not you know I mean I don't want to say easy as in it's like 
not super deep or anything, but it's not like got crazy deep theological writing, you know, that stuff that you can't understand. Um, but it's, it's light. Yeah, but it's, it's good. It's interesting. And it introduces you to some saints that you may not have heard of. There were some that I had never heard of before. So that was pretty neat. And if you like geeky characters like me, you know, there were a lot in here that I really, really love, you know, like reading all about Hermione and, you know, Katniss Everdeen and Wonder Woman and how they're just like the saints. That's pretty fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, I just am really in, amused by the idea of this book because I've really never seen anything like it before. Yeah, so keep your eyes peeled. We will be setting up the giveaway for that soon. And um, make sure you are following us on social media at Fidelis Women on Twitter and Fidelis Blog on Facebook. And please rate, share, and subscribe if you enjoy this podcast. Um, for Lauren and Cassie, thank you for tuning in to Fidelis, where there's no right way to be a Catholic woman. Bye, everyone.